feeling sort of nostalgic because here I am sitting on this Panic.com website once again. You're looking at the play date? Oh, I forgot about that. Panic.com. The play date. We make super nice software and soon a brand new code editor. Oh, okay. Oh, yeah, the play date. Yeah, that's cool. It's cool. I, I, I wasn't looking at that. I was actually looking at, uh, what is it called? Nova? Nova. Panic, the successor to Coda. See, when I when I think of Mac, when I think of the Mac and Nova, all I can think of is the game Escape Velocity Nova. Escape Velocity. Which I used to play over at my friend Joey's house during the summer on his uh, system, uh, Mac OS 9, on his old Mac. Escape Velocity. This thing's really familiar. It's a fun, like, top-down uh, 2D space exploration, trading, combat game with a little story and uh, loose goals. It's pretty pretty fun. I really got into it. Uh, I think it's still, you can still buy it and play it. Oh, so you know that inventory game I think I mentioned a few years back that I used to play all the time, top down. Did I mention it on air? I can't, I can't remember if it was like a Discord chat or whatever, but uh, there was this game I used to play back, I don't even remember what year it was to be honest, uh, but I just have memories of playing this thing. So I would sneak upstairs to the computer and I would throw a blanket over the modem. So when it was booting up, <laughs> or, uh, my parents wouldn't wake up because uh, those things were so loud. So I'd throw a blanket over it, and then I would play this game called Infantry, which is top-down. Sort of, it was like a multiplayer online game, but uh, pixel-based. And uh, I'm trying to think of, I guess it was similar to just like modern first-person shooters where there's like call, you know, uh, capture the flag and different game modes like that. Yeah, I remember, um, I remember you mentioned this. Yeah, yeah. So, so I started looking around for it again, and it turns out one of the devs re- resurrected it. And uh, so there's the server, the server's online and you can play it again. They have a Discord and uh, they have like league nights on Sunday nights. <laughs> Pretty wild. I haven't, I haven't tried playing it again, but nostalgic. Um, but yeah, it's Panic. They they just announced very recently the successor to Coda, which I never really used. I bought, but didn't ever use it. I can't remember why. Uh, looks interesting, but I don't know. There's just so many good options out there. It, it's hard for me to see like how big of a user base or like how big of a target audience they have for, you know, a code editor, a Mac specific code editor. Yeah. It's interesting looking through the screenshots here on their site. It looks great, has nice native UI components and theming and pretty, looks pretty awesome. And it's like, we were saying uh, offline before we started recording that like, who, who's the target for this? Is there, is there enough of an audience to warrant developing a native uh editor for mac os from scratch i mean if anyone's going to do it it's going to be panic but mm-hmm. uh when when every other editor is cross-platform it's de- it's definitely an outlier right yeah it looks great so I'm, I'm reading through the blog post where they're talking about it and they're saying like oh yeah we think it's really good we use it every day it has uh all the new modern features like multiple cursors uh tag pairs bracket pairing, editor over scroll, which I turn off in the re-editor. It drives me nuts. Uh, improved autocomplete. So it's interesting. Like To me, I don't think of those as modern features. Those are just features to me. So it, I don't know. It, and then it's it's like there's uh, you can publish to multiple destinations. Okay. The sidebar for build, build issues. Okay. You can theme the entire workspace. That's cool. It has an integrated terminal. That's cool. But I'll, like so do all the other ones I have, you know. Uh, so I don't know. I'm not trying to hate on it because it does look really nice, but it was just the first things that kind of came to my mind. We were like, okay, well, I don't see what this brings to the table that I don't already have. 
and especially in IntelliJ, I, I, I don't, I fear that the hooks are in too deep now and I won't be able to leave, uh, the, the IntelliJ world. So maybe that, maybe that's part of it, but I don't know. I don't know. You seem to switch editors more than you change your underwear. So I'm not putting money on that. I did until I, until I found IntelliJ. Shout <laughs> okay. out to, to, to Greg. <laughs> Uh, so, I mean, I've tried actually switching away back just to see, like switching uh, away from IntelliJ just to see. So I'd go back to VS Code or go back to Sublime or go to, and go back to whichever. But I, it's been it's been a good bit now that I, I've just been just using IntelliJ. So I'll use VS Code for a few hours and get frustrated about stuff and you go back to IntelliJ or go back to Sublime and get frustrated and go back to IntelliJ. And so now I'm just kind of like, this is, I don't know, I I'm I'm really productive with it now, and the keyboard shortcuts are so good that I, it, even if something may look nicer or something may feel a little bit snappier, I just can't. I don't feel like I can justify it because the keyboard shortcuts are that good. That's great to hear. And you're using it with the Elixir extensions, right? So you get autocomplete for all those things. Yeah, yeah. So you get autocomplete. So actually, today I learned a new shortcut. Uh, so. Uh, I'm constantly going back and forth between tests and the you know the implementation or the the functions that I'm testing. And today I just learned that there's a shortcut Command Shift T. So if you're hovering over a function uh, in any Elixir file, Command Shift T will jump you to the the matching test file for that. Um, oh. Yeah, and then vice versa. So if you're if you're if you're focusing on like a describe, uh, you hit Command Shift T, it'll pop you back to the actual function. I'm not sure exactly how it works behind the, behind the scenes. So what I usually, how I usually structure my tests are describe function name slash ARD number. Uh, and so when I hit command shift T, it actually jumps me back to the right function from the test to the... It even knows the module? Yeah. Ah, that's cool. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know how it all works, but I, I just... So I was looking at a YouTube video today and it mentioned that shortcut. And so I was like, oh, I'm going to try this. And it just worked. It blew my mind. It just worked. I'm doing it right now my editor on my other window. <laughs> Um, but there, I don't know. There's just stuff. I don't, I don't know. There's, there's stuff like that. So like command shift T I'm just now using a lot. Command E is maybe my favorite thing. It's like a recent files, uh, recent file window. You hit command E and, uh, it opens up a little window and it, I guess like in VS code, uh, maybe in sublime it does this. If you hit command P, it shows you, uh, it opens up a, a little panel that shows you the files you have open most recently. Uh, so in IntelliJ, you hit Command-E or Control-E, I guess, and it does it does the same thing, and then you can start typing, and it filters. Uh, but for me, VS Code is never quite right, and uh, I think when you start typing, it starts filtering all of your files, not just the recently opened files. Um, and then also in IntelliJ, uh, if you just hit Command-E really quickly and hit Enter, you can jump between the last two files that you had open. So... Oh, sure. Yeah, and so what I actually did was I turned off tabs. I don't even have tabs anymore in my editors. That blows my mind. <laughs> yeah, so so Greg told me about that. He does the same thing, and it blew my mind too. But but now I'm I'm only ever working on two or three files at the same time, and I can get to those Command-E, down, enter, or Command-E, enter, and flip back and forth, and it's just as fast. But I find that when I'm looking through tabs, I don't know why, it, I'm always... I'm always just using my mouse for whatever reason. I mean, I have what's the keyboard shortcut from Mac? It's Command Shift, uh, left and right uh, brace, and you can go to the previous and next tab. But I don't know. Command E is is really fast. And what's also cool is if you hit Command Shift E in IntelliJ, it shows your recent location. So uh, 
it'll actually show you in uh, where you last left off in a cursor in each in each buffer that you have open. So I'll send you, I'll put a screenshot to this in the show notes too. But uh, yeah, so like when I jump into, so tomorrow morning when I start working, I'll hit Command Shift E and then I'll look at all the different places that I left off for the previous day, which is kind of helpful for me to um, get context back, I suppose. I don't know. There's There's just a lot of little stuff like that that I find really useful and I get really frustrated if I go somewhere else and I don't have access to that stuff anymore. It does look really cool. I might have to, I don't know if I ever even gave this a shot. I'll definitely have to check it out, especially there's a lot of hubbub now with the new version uh, just came out to the past day or two, I think. Oh, right. Yeah. So yeah, yeah. it's it's good. I mean, it's, it's definitely, it's definitely, it's definitely different, especially because you're using Sublime, right? Uh, It's definitely very different. So, I have spent some time like configure, configuring it. So the cool thing is that if you have like a prettier RC or an ESLint uh, config file or an editor config file, it just, it'll see that and just use those things and it'll override whatever you have pre-configured in the IDE. But there are some things that you want to configure in the IDE. It's just that now I've, I've done that. And so I don't ever have to change anything anymore and it just works for me. But it's really different in the fact that it just feels like there's more to to be aware of, I guess, when you're using it or configuring it, rather. You have to learn, I guess, you, what I'm trying to say is you have to learn about the app. So like Sublime, you open the thing up and you're just editing text. It's really quickly, right? VS Code, to some extent, is, is similar. It does a lot of stuff, but to me, it's hard to find that stuff in VS Code. Uh, in IntelliJ, you hit Command-Shift-A and you can type anything and it auto-completes anything. So any actions you have configured, it'll auto-complete any preferences that you can change. Uh, you can do anything in the app by hitting Command Shift A. Likewise, uh, hitting like Double Shift 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 will search for classes. It'll search through symbols. It'll search through files. Uh, so there's a lot of small things like that that I find really useful. Um, I think maybe the biggest thing that I that I had to get used to was it seems like the philosophy of the JetBrains people are uh, the app shouldn't be invoking commands. Uh, sort of behind the scenes or auto, auto magically, I guess you could say. So one of my biggest frustrations with VS Code was you install Prettier or you install ESLint and it just starts formatting stuff, right? And and you can turn that stuff off, but by default, it would just like auto format things. And then also I never really had a way to know which was doing the thing. So if you just Google Google uh, configuring ESLint and Prettier together in VS Code, you'll find a slew of things like people having problems like they're fighting each other one will format it and then the other one will come up behind it and, and like override it again so people are pushing like packages to try to help you configure this stuff uh and i could never really get it quite right paul and i were always sort of trying to to get it quite right but his would be working one day and mine would not be working and the next day mine would be working fine and his wouldn't be working anymore um so so flipping over to to jetbrains or websorb intelligence or whatever uh there are plugins you can have uh, that that you can install to say like, hey, auto run this command after I save a file. But they just say, hey, if you want to format a file, just hit a command like a keyboard shortcut and format it that way. That way, there's things aren't there's not all this stuff running behind the scenes every time you change a file. They want it to be more intentional, I suppose. So there's some some like philosophy differences that that are that might take you a second to get used to. But I I kind of like it now because I haven't. Since I switched over, I haven't had a thought of like, oh, wait, which which plugin is running and doing this thing right now? And that was something I was always struggling with with VS Code. Yeah, I know, for example, if I'm in the middle of editing a 
Elixir source file and I save it, it all runs mixed format for me. But then my cursor moves, <laughs> or the cursor's now in the wrong spot because it's added some line breaks or notation or something. And now, uh-huh. now I got to mentally figure out where I actually was before I hit Command S, which I do a lot. Right. Yeah. I have. What do I have? I have uh, ESLint fix map to Command Control L, and I have mixed format map to Control Option L. So those are just in my, my fingers now. So I just push those whenever I want to format stuff. Well, this week's episode is brought to you by IntelliJ. <laughs> they haven't paid me, I promise. Anyway, anyway <laughs> it, you know, it, it looks cool. Like, pan, the, the Nova looks cool. I thought it was really funny. I just noticed this too. Was in the the website, uh, I think Paul linked a theme to me, a VS Code theme that had like fuzzy, it was like an 80s style theme where the text had like a glow behind it. It looked really cool. Yeah, I noticed that yeah. too. Yeah. One of Panic screenshots has that has that theme in, in the editor. I thought that was kind of funny. Which to be explicit for the listeners here, it's like, it's like syntax highlighting. You pick the color, except it has a glow on it <laughs> instead of just in addition to the color. Yeah. This is very uh, vaporwave. But yeah, anyway, I guess I say all, I say all that to like not try to, push that stuff on anybody or push IntelliJ on anybody. I, I just really, like the keyboard shortcuts are so nice. I, I think that they're so nice that I'm willing to put up with some other crap just to have them because I got so used to them so quickly. And I think it was, I think it was 30 days. So Greg, I don't even know what brought this up. I Maybe I was complaining about something to him and he was like, uh, hey, why don't you try this and give it a real shot? And I was like, well, how long is a real shot? And he said, he said two weeks to a month. And I said, okay. So I, as frustrating as it was, I switched over to IntelliJ. I installed the Vim plugin because that's what I used in VS Code. And a month later, I was like, oh no, uh, I better put my credit card in, you know, because now I'm used to this. And yeah, it's been it's been that way ever since, I guess. But I'd be interested to hear what you have to think about it for sure. Yeah, I might have to give it a shot one of these days. Yeah, yeah. So uh, what uh, what have you been up to? Oh man, <laughs> where to begin? Uh, well, I got my uh, tickets to ElixirConf, hmm. so now I can peer pressure you into coming as well. Peer pressure? Uh, I'm not doing the classes. I'm just gonna do the two days of talks, which, and I'll probably, I'll probably end up doing a lightning talk again this week or this this year, like I've done in the past, just because it's fun and easy to prep for, and I can plug the show, and it'll be good. I have an idea for a topic too already, and the venue looks super cool. It's like. I went to go look at it on Google. It's on uh, Google Maps, Google Earth, whatever. And uh, mm-hmm. it's like not even on the satellite imagery yet. That's how new this place is. <laughs> right. Yeah. So I was looking at a map the other day and I was confused because it was like just a plot of dirt mm-hmm. next to a road. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But it's like right next to the airport. So super convenient and it looks really nice. Right. Right. I'm looking forward and to And where that. is it again? Although I don't really know what, what's around for food options uh it's called the gaylord rockies resort in denver yeah uh, it's in aurora technically yeah it looks cool yeah definitely looking forward to that uh what are you looking forward to most i've never been to a conference so i don't know the goings on i mean i'll be honest i don't always get a lot out of the talks i'm always bad at picking talks because i tend to focus on the topic of the talk but really i should be focusing on who's giving it because if the person who's giving it is really good and really passionate about what they're doing I don't care what they're talking about. I get way more out of it. So, uh, like, for example, uh, the guy who does Scenic, uh, what's his name? Boyd M. Uh, Bo- yeah, Bo- Brandon, Brandon Boyd. Is that his name? Boyd. <laughs> wow, Brandon Boyd. It's uh, someone from my high school. Boyd Multerer. Uh, he is 
awesome, awesome, awesome speaker, presenter. I've talked about him on this show before, I think. He uh, came from Microsoft's Xbox team. Oh, and is working on this awesome library called Scenic, and he's starting a company around it. And it's just, it's super cool. I always look forward to hearing him talk because he's very smart and geeky and paranoid in terms of like security. So it's always, <laughs> sure, it's always very eye opening. Uh, I remember he gave a talk on one of the uh, recently, and he was talking about how like you never know when they're listening. And as soon as he said that, his mic cut out. Mm-hmm. It's just uh, good timing, good showmanship. I don't know. <laughs> So yeah, mostly all I'm looking forward to is the uh, socialization aspect. I mean, that's that's really what any conference is about. So I was I saw on Twitter, uh, must have been last week at this point now. It's something that made me paranoid speaking about security. But uh, Ben 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 from Thoughtbot Ben Ben Ornstein uh, Ben Ornstein. So he's working uh, on a new startup called Tuple, and they do a pair programming app for Mac that's supposed to be hyper performant. And, uh, yeah, so he was tweeting and he was asking about, asking for information about people that have gotten things pen tested, uh, and how much it cost. <laughs> and, and so I was like, what's a pen test? And so I looked it up and I was like, oh, you're hiring hackers to hack your stuff and tell you what's broke. And apparently it's very expensive, uh, like 10,000 plus dollars expensive to have a pretty small API, uh, tested. Sounds about right. Yeah. And then I was thinking, do I need to have... Is this something that I need to worry about? Uh, and I I don't know. So it seems like, so they're kind of like battling in this space that that partial, the partial space that Zoom in here like inhabits right now, right? So um, I've used Zoom before to do screen sharing and uh, specifically pair programming because Zoom allows you to uh, control the other person's mouse. So you can, if you're sharing your screen with somebody, you can give them control and they can control your mouse and, and you can work together that way, right? It works works fine. Um, and their Zoom's obviously a massive company. Uh, you know, I think they've been catching a lot of news recently about their valuation of being many billions. Also been catching news about their security issues, right? So I think, uh, I think that's where Tuple was trying to kind of pick up some steam there. They're like, oh, by the way, you know, we've never installed a rogue web server on your machine that will allow us to install the app whenever we please. Yeah, the bar's really low there. Right, yeah. So I think that's kind of what spurred his his looking into the pen testing because they're trying to, I think, I feel like from their tweets, this again, this is none of this is firsthand information, but I feel like from their tweets, they're really trying to get into, get a foot in the door to more enterprise, more like, you know, mid-level, large-level companies, you know, having employees come in the door. But with with that comes all these certifications that you have to have, right? And so I saw people tweeting about, you know, a certain... Zoom has all these certifications because they're an enterprise company and they have enterprise clients and they have to have these certifications. But they still do things like, you know, install uh, a backdoor into your machine, basically, or uh, uh, circumvent basic browser-level security things like cores on purpose, right? That kind of blew my mind, too, with the whole image endpoint based on the size of the image that was does pretty well i'll find an article talking about that but you know so so they were tweeting or it's people some people in that space were tweeting like oh well apparently you know apparently these certifications don't really mean a whole lot because all this other stuff is going on and so it feels like they're kind of trying to go through the steps there get get some more certifications get pen tested so that they can say they've been well, penetration tested, I guess, is the full way to say it, but get a pen test so they can say that. Basically, it seems like they're having to jump through a whole lot of hoops before people will even consider them, like more more hashtag enterprise business companies will consider them. 
But yeah, that made me paranoid this week, or maybe it was last week. I can't remember, but I was just paranoid about that. I was like, oh no, is this something I have to worry about? Uh, probably not, but something that I learned about anyway. Yeah, I'm no, I'm not really sure about the value of that for something, some businesses that are our size. I, yeah, uh, I mean, you've got you've got your basic basis covered in terms of you know, stupid things <laughs> that you could do, you know, in terms of open ports or running in secure services. You're obviously keeping everything up to date. Uh, so, I mean, like, and you're, you're, you know, you don't have to worry about SQL injection attacks because Ecto takes care of that. You don't have to worry about, I mean, there's a whole class of problems that are solved problems for, you know, more or less because you're just using the, the latest tools. Right. But someone will always find a way if they really want to. Just don't get in on anyone's bad side. <laughs> trying to stay uh, security by obscurity, I guess you could say. Trying to keep the business small. My SSH is open on port 2222. You'll never find it. <sighs> You'll never find it. <laughs> I can feel, I feel like the Matrix robots are, are spinning up right now and they're getting ready to, to go looking for the port. The squiddies? Yeah, the squiddies. Well, I got some other big news over here in Remote Ham Radio land. The very, very small world of remote ham radio. <laughs> uh, so I've, one of the big things I've been wanting to do ever since I launched the new Nuxt console, which was in, gosh, I think it was March. So it's been May, June, July. Been like three or four months since I've launched the, the Nuxt Vue.js console. And uh, we've been working towards this new hardware infrastructure on the back end, these new brand of radios that are really, really, really well suited for what we're doing. Uh, typical radios we've used, used in the past, it's called an Elecraft K3 for any hams out there. Uh, they're awesome, awesome radios, but they're awesome radios for like the guy who's in the shack and wants to turn knobs and push buttons, right? It has a big glowing amber screen. And it's got great knobs and good buttons, and it has a lot of really high-performance features for like those kind of operators. It's also really small and compact. You can bring it bring it with you if you're going somewhere so uh they're great and that's what we've always remoted from day one because they've just been awesome radios and they supported a lot of the stuff we needed to do to control it over the pc uh on the other hand you've got this new breed of radio called the flex radio and this is a totally software defined radio where the actual radio itself is literally just like a box with power and ethernet in the back <laughs> no front panel no screen it has just like a power button right and uh, you access it entirely using software. So you run their smart SDR client software on your LAN. They also have a dedicated hardware solution, which runs a version of that. So like it gives you kind of front panel buttons, but it talks to everything over Ethernet. It digitizes the signals, all the audio, the Morse code, everything gets just done over Ethernet, which obviously is a way better fit when you're trying to remotely control something. And they have a published protocol. They even publish their own uh, .NET API that they use. They basically dog food it, and then they release their their client API mm -hmm. open source, so you can just use it in your own applications. Of course, we're not using it, but I use it as like my reference if I need to figure out how something works. I can just dig in through their C-sharp and, and figure out the commands if something's being <laughs> weird. Reverse engineer it, I suppose. That's pretty cool. Yeah. And so... Uh, one of the big things of getting the new console out there was being able to support these new radios because in addition to just doing audio and, you know, all the regular radio stuff, they also give what's called a waterfall or a pan adapter. So, like, I, you can visually see the signals on a band. So, like, you, you know what, like, an equalizer looks like, right? Like, you're in a band mm -hmm. and you know, like, an equalizer, 
right? Yes. Yep. So low frequencies are like on the left side and the high frequencies on the right side. And as those different frequency components uh, increase in amplitude, you can watch it go up and down. So what the waterfall is, is like an equalizer except for radio signals and it covers a way wider bandwidth, right? As wide as you want it to be. So instead of covering like four kilohertz or, or excuse me, like 20 kilohertz, which would be like an audible range, it might cover like 300 kilohertz or megahertz hmm. or many megahertz, right? So it allows you to visualize where all the signals are and uh, you can literally just click on it and it tunes to it. So I feel like, I feel like you, you made something like that, right? I feel like you've shown me a UI that you made in Nuxt like that, right? Yeah, so that's what that's what it is. That's what we actually launched this week. Awesome. Okay. As as a uh, as an alpha test to our users, so we put three stations on these radios. We made them free because we knew you know free like per minute because we knew there were going to be issues, and we really want people to use them and get feedback. Mm-hmm. So for a limited time, they're free. And uh, man, it's just been freaking great. It's just like I I just love how I was able to so rapidly sort of develop these features uh, on the front end and the back end and get it all kind of tied together. And uh, the the feedback has been, you know, obviously you get the, the the influx of new people giving you lots of, you know, good feedback and bad feedback or bad feedback. I mean like bug reports and stuff, right? Issues. Sure, yeah, yeah. But that's, that's why we're doing it. You know, you got to just mentally prepare for that and accept it and get it all codified in your issue system and work through them by one. And that's, that's what I've been doing. That's why I'm like, exhausted already because uh i've just been working through that backlog of of things but no no major issues though the launch went pretty smoothly yeah in fact (laughs) i uh i broke the cardinal rule i actually pushed the code on like friday at four o'clock i told you not to i know let the record let let the record show that i i said don't do it you only have once sean we were we kind of get this like soft soft deadline for ourselves like really want to get it out there and so, yeah, we just, just went for it. Everything was working fine in test. And worst case, I just disable it and roll it back and it's fine. But sure. no, everything was fine. And uh, people got to use it over the weekend, which is their busiest time. And uh, yeah, it's been it's been very smooth. And I've already made a bunch of updates and improvements. And um, I've been doing a lot of hot upgrades in Phoenix as well, Ooh. which has been awesome. <laughs> yeah, lots of little, just like little tweaks where you don't have to change a whole lot at once, but you want to push a change out there without forcing everybody's web socket to disconnect to just do a little hot upgrade. I'm it's I'm fine. thankful that I'm thankful that I don't have to worry about it even though I'm on a technology where it, it's it's a thing like it's documented this is how you do this and there's 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 uh, affordances made for that. I mean that's why a lot of people choose Elixir and OTP and all that stuff. I uh, I'm just thankful I haven't had to worry about it yet. Yeah, so here's the thing. Hot upgrades are man, they're not they're not like a, a catch-all solution for everything. There there's some situations where you like literally architectural changes in your code where you just the amount of time it would take to support the hot upgrade it would not be worth it right Mm -hmm. uh uh, at least for me Uh, versus the downtime of just like okay i'll just set an alarm for 2 a.m wake up and do the deploy and no one will notice right that's that's a totally acceptable thing to do in my eyes. Right. Yeah. I mean, that's that's what I do. If I if I have to do any sort of downtime, if it's if it's the migration's going to take a while, that's exactly what I do. I just stay up late one night, um, let everyone know, hey, I'm doing this. Push out the door, let it do its thing, turn it back on, and it, it's fine. Usually, I can I I usually deploy at least once a day. Not recently, but. Uh, there's there's reasons for that, but on I said I I think on most on most weeks I would say I deploy at least once a day 
whether it's like a small tweak here or a change in copy there or something like that. Um, and I've never, never really had any issues, but then again, you know, I'm not having to hold memory in state. I'm not having to, to support, um, uh, two way connections. You know, everything right now is, is pretty, pretty stateless, pretty simple. Uh, and I've kind of, there've been places. So we have like some messaging that we built, um, I could have used subscriptions or web sockets for that. And I just use polling cause it's easier and less, less, uh, complexity that it, I have to worry about right now. Obviously it would be cool to have that stuff, but I just have, have straight away from it. So the other thing about this is like, I came from a platform, mainly just pure Ruby and some rail stuff where, uh, I didn't have hot upgrades. I had to just always had to do these restarts if I wanted to make make updates to the server software. And so really there's better architectural solutions than relying on hot upgrades to work uh, or, or relying them on ha- having them in your back pocket, I should say. Mm-hmm. Really the right the right structure of the application is client has a WebSocket client browser. Uh, there's like some kind of gateway server that is basically dumb. It's just a TCP endpoint more or less that your client's always connected to. And that server, basically, you never upgrade or never take down because there's no logic in it. Who cares? And then behind that, you decouple it from your actual processing of the messages. So the messages that are coming in and out, you basically relay it through that gateway server. And so that way, your everything that's behind it can be stateless. You can put it behind something like RabbitMQ. So you literally just have message keys flowing in and out. And if you have to bring down a worker to upgrade it uh, some other worker will just take the message right you you can you can gain some sort of stateless infrastructure that way by hiding it behind behind a constant tcp socket so i i thought about doing that for many years and i just never never got around to it uh because it was fine and it was not that big of a deal but i feel like that would be a much better architecture because it would really give you that flexibility to not even have to rely on hot upgrades at all and just just uh, willy-nilly, you know, blue-green deploy everything and it'll be fine. Yeah. It, so so that uh, that book, the book that I've been reading, what's it called? I'm struggling again today. Uh, Elixir in Action talks about, it talks about how everything kind of used to be, it, like a lot of, a lot of services used to use in memory uh, states basically. And then things swung another way and went to basically all stateless uh, servers. And then I thought it framed it really interesting. It was like, well, you know, for some things it does make sense and it does solve some problems to have state in memory. And that's that's why uh, OTP brings that to the table. So if you have to deal with that, it gives you the tools to be able to deal with that should you need to. Uh, if you don't need them, you don't got to use them. Like, like, like me, for example, you know. But I thought that was a really interesting way to frame it because, uh, and this goes back to a discussion we had a couple of weeks ago where... I was looking around at all these different authentication libraries and they were all using these just really complicated technologies and going way overboard. I think, you know, having these in-memory states and and having to sync changes from your in-memory store to your, your, your database and like back and forth and all this stuff. And it's like, well, you probably don't need any of that stuff. Like chances, chances are, I mean, completely being completely honest about it. Like if you're building an enterprise system, you're probably not using coherence. You're probably not using PAL for your authentication stuff, right? For, for storing your sessions and things. You're probably not doing that. So there's a good chance that whoever is using these libraries aren't 
they don't need all that stuff. Like Design Collective doesn't need all that stuff, you know. So instead of picking those tools off the shelf, I opted to do it myself because the moving pieces are just so much less involved there. Uh, but I thought the framing of that uh, in the book was interesting because it kind of brought it back to the middle ground. So there's, I felt like there in, in libraries, people can kind of get a little bit overzealous and say, oh, we're going to use Amnesia, we're using Etz, we're using all these cool OTP things. And the book was like, hey, well, you don't, you don't need to. The tools exist in case you do, but you most likely don't need to. Yeah, and another one is Umbrella Projects, which I constantly see people just blindly doing without really understanding why. Mm-hmm. And then you're struggling with it because it is a complicated concept that really has limited application for what 99% of people are actually doing. Yeah, so I picked up the Phoenix in Action book. Uh, I think it got delivered a couple of days ago. And it was that was one thing I thought was interesting is it kind of jumps into... Uh, umbrella umbrella apps right away. I haven't really read too much more into the book, just haven't had time. Uh, but that I thought that was that was like one of my first impressions. Just scanning it, I was like, oh, umbrella projects in, you know, in an in action book, which it's not like in advanced concepts books. It, it, it's the in action series is kind of like a here's a really high level overview of all these different moving pieces. Yeah, definitely. And I I uh, yeah, P- I see people using umbrellas as a code organization tool. When really that's not at all what it's for. Like I, I've yet to run into a problem that couldn't be solved by just architecting your, you know, mono application, your mono repo a little better uh, than adding the complexity of an umbrella. So, yeah, I don't know. It's, it's a whole thing. I, I don't really enough understand it enough to even critique it as much as I am right now, to be honest. Sure, sure, yeah. But I just know that I see more people having problems with it than having success with it. Yeah, I guess I guess the the theme I think that we're trying to get at is do, these tools are available should you need them. Should you be like should you have a real need for an umbrella app? Should you have a real need for in in memory state? But that shouldn't should you have a real need for macros? Right. But you shouldn't just default to to that because the tool exists there, right? So if I'm if I'm if I'm cutting down uh several small small bushes i don't need to go out into the garage and get a chainsaw (laughs) i could do it with a chainsaw but you know it's it's different it's not it's not necessarily you could get the job done but it's not necessarily meant for that it's a little bit overkill right i guess maybe is what i'm trying to say uh sometimes sometimes it can be cool to feel like you're wielding all this power and uh, you you don't need it and i guess that's been a lot of design collective is like simplifying and calling stuff now, uh, which, which feels really, really good. Uh, but also really, I, th- I can't state how important that has been to helping me be able to maintain things as a solo developer or a developer on a team of two people. Yeah. Cause once you add those complexities, it's something else you have to know about it's something somewhere else you have to look for, for state or for changes and keep up to date and remember and teach people, right. teach new developers. Yeah. That's yeah. That's very, very true. Uh, I've been I've been using... So another thing I've been trying differently is I've been trying to do... When I, when I have like programming work to do, I do that on my laptop. But when I'm doing non-programming things, whether it's thinking, writing docs, communicating, having meetings, I've been doing that on my iPad, uh, which is, which has been... Yeah, which has been interesting. Um, so I, I, uh, I kind of like it. It keeps me from prematurely jumping into code. 
jumping into code and implementing stuff maybe before I should. Not that that, that's like a huge issue for me right now, but I don't know. I find the distinction kind of nice because the code editor is not there. I don't know why it makes me feel so different or makes me think differently about things, but I don't know. Yeah. I like that. That's like a, it's like a mental trick. Like uh, if you, if you want to start, if you want to go jogging, you, when you get up in the morning, you just put on your jogging clothes. Right. right? <laughs> yeah. And eventually you'll, you'll get to it. It's like, it's like a mental thing. You've taken away that barrier to doing the thing and uh, it makes it, you know, mentally you're, you're preparing for it. Where this is like the opposite, right? You're, you're increasing the, <laughs> the barrier. It's like, it's okay. Better, better metaphor. You're sitting on the couch and there's some crappy movie on, but the remote is like out of reach. Mm-hmm. <laughs> You've got the, you know, just, just enough separation, the uh, context switching overhead that you're not going to want to just jump in and write code. So I also find that I wasted an extreme, like an extraordinary amount of time screwing around in, in just in code with not, without really having a clear, so, okay, so I can preface this with sometimes exploratory programming is good and exploring like creative problem solving or whatever, whatever you want to call it and writing code prototyping is, is great, but uh most of the time I'm not doing that. Most of the time I have a, I suppose I'm supposed to have like a clear goal. So, uh, I'll, I'll outline this scenario. So say I get up, I go sit down on my computer, I have a task that I'm working on. Uh, so I'll jump into my editor and start screwing around. Uh, by screwing around, I mean, start trying to work on this thing. What I should have done was go back to my notes, review things, think about the work I did yesterday. Because at the end of the day, I always leave myself notes in Notion. So I do all of my work in cards in a board in Notion, and I'll leave notes for myself for tomorrow. So what I should do is sit down, think about what I worked on, think about the notes that I had. Am I still going in the right direction? Because overnight, I always seem to solve problems that I had the following day or always seem to have designed something better than I did the previous day. So what I really should be doing is sort of doing some sort of introspection thing. And then once I'm really in the zone and have a clear path, that's when I should be writing code and running tests. And what I find I do is sit down and just screw around. And so I'm basically just like, I kick the code over here. Then I walk over to where I kicked it and I kick it somewhere else. And then I walk over there and I kick it somewhere else, right? Uh, I don't know if you find yourself doing that, but I find myself getting in sort of like a write a function, redo it, redo it, redo it when really what I should have done was like actually been planning and thinking and then implementing it out once I had uh, my ducks in a row. That actually happened to me uh, just last week where I it was in Ruby and I wrote a class that was like a, it was kind of like a helper, kind of like a, a watchdog kind of class. It kept track of other stuff and it was just kind of a singleton and sat there. And then I was like, man, I really don't need all this functionality here. I can just spread it about spread it out to these other different classes that already exist. And then I started moving the stuff over and then I ended up just refactoring it back into another class that did exactly <laughs> the same thing, but had a different name. Right. Uh, yeah. Literally just, just going in circles, copying and pasting. Yeah. And I, I find I would do that a lot and I've been trying to fight it. So one thing I picked up from Paul that, that uh, I'm really appreciative. He, he didn't like sit me down and be like, Hey, this is, this is what helps me. But I just kind of noticed him doing this. Is, is that when he's when he's working and thinking about a problem instead of instead of going to his editor and sort of half implementing it and clicking around what he'll do is he'll go into whatever notebook he's using uh, and so he was I think he still uses bear maybe and so he would write out he basically write a feature spec in bear but then he would actually just start writing code in bear 
and and it was interesting because you can't run it inside of Bear. You know, you can't you can't actually use it. You can't click around with it in the browser or send requests to it. It's just sort of there. And what I noticed was that he would sort of sort of build like build the outside layers of these features, like basically design the interface or how you would interact with it in code that's just in Notion or Bear or in a, in a Markdown file. And then he would he would start refactoring it there, right? So he would start like, oh, this name doesn't make any sense. That doesn't name that name doesn't make any sense. Uh, this function doesn't make any sense. This could be moved over here. And he's just doing it all in text. And so it was interesting because, like you said, it sort of removes part of a thing that could be a stumbling block. And it's exactly what it seemed to do for him is he he wouldn't have to save a file, wait for it to compile, and then actually start prematurely clicking this thing or sending information to an endpoint or whatever, right? So it allowed him to purely think about what does the API interface look like? What does this look like from a design standpoint? Does it even make sense when I look at this? And it completely removes the part of like, does this compile? Uh, what does the namespacing look like, right? It's all BS code at that point. So he would send me this document and and I would look at the code and I'd be like, oh, this is this makes a lot of sense. And and then what he would do is he would just start pasting from his document into his editor and then he would commit it. I thought that was really cool. So I'm trying to do that more. So on my iPad, I do sort of the same thing. So in whatever Notion card I'm in, I just throw a markdown block down or a code block down and I start trying to design the API, the service area uh, before I even jump into an editor. That's interesting because you're, you're almost basically just doing test-driven development at that point. Like, why wouldn't you just go in and start running a test spec, a failing test that, that doesn't do anything? I mean, is that seems like the next logical thing. Because I would I would and do uh, get distracted. Okay, because again, uh, you're actually so, writing code yeah. at that point. I'm actually writing code. So then I started thinking about Oh, can can I refactor? So so then I start like the Thoughtbot videos start playing in my head, and I'm like, is there is there uh, duplicated logic in this test that I can refactor into a function? And then I start doing that whole thing, right? So I start thinking about all this stuff that I shouldn't be thinking about yet, just because I'm in my editor. I don't know why that is, but this is what happens to me. Um, so yeah, I, like t- TDD would be a great a great um, place for that. But I always get pulled away and distracted. I always get ahead of myself. Maybe is what I'm trying to say when I'm in my editor. So this sort of removes the ability for me to do that. I don't know about you, but sometimes when I'm working on building a feature, not not t- necessarily like bug reports or adding like minor features, but I'm building a big feature, uh, trying to put everything into like GitHub issues, like put everything in individual issue or or just try to document everything on just even typing it out is like too slow for me. So I, I literally just have a pad of staples paper on my desk that I just scribble crap on and eventually I just throw it out. I don't keep it. I've got like UI diagrams here. Here's like, I was trying to visualize a database, you know, foreign key relationship. So I like drew that out. I've got a, a double column checklist of like things I need to implement for the flex radio. Uh, I don't know. Yeah, that that's kind of been my thing. I've been trying lately is just 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 scribbling stuff out. I like you have the, the entire power of this beautiful 5K iMac, and uh, you know, and all these tools, Notion and GitHub and and uh, Kanban boards, all stuff, and I'm scribbling on paper. I bought at Staples. Yeah, uh, <laughs> I do. I do. The, I don't know, man. I do that a lot too. I draw in a scribble. Um, I just do it on my iPad. Uh, 
just cause I don't know it's there. So I use it. So, but I do the same thing. Uh, instead of if, if I have to do any sort of like actual thinking, I usually just, uh, scribble into, onto this iPad into, I use an app called concepts for, for drawing, but yeah, the same thing. I just scribble. So what's interesting is when I used to work with Paul, at Octopus, he would just draw cubes over and over and over again. So I'd come down from getting a drink of water and he'd be sta- like his, he'd be sitting camper style in his chair. His face would be about five inches from the piece of paper and he'd just be drawing cubes, <laughs> a dozen, a dozen cubes. And then he would like, his head would shoot up and he would just type a bunch of stuff, type furiously. And an app was made. Uh, I don't know how he did what he did, but yeah, he would just draw cubes over and over again. My my wife and I, like we, we have both have iPhones, we have shared calendars, we got our family calendar, personal calendar, we can always chat with each other anytime, instantly using iMessage, and yet I still, like I just bought a, a whiteboard for our fridge that has like the days of the week on it, because like, again, it's just, just something about that, Yeah, having it in front of you and the physical you know uh, what? Uh, scratch pad. Uh, there's this, this blew my, this blew my mind, so... There are a number of different conferences like uh, interior design, furniture manufacturer conferences that happen throughout the year. And a lot of our a lot of our clients for Design Collective are are older and and so we used to have an iPad that they would take to these conferences that would just have, you know, you fill out a form and it puts it in a Google sheet, whatever. Um and that worked okay. Uh and then one year or for one conference, they they just put out like a stack of papers. And it was a printed out form and you could sign up for design collective by filling out this form. And that severely outperformed any sort of iPad or kiosk setup. People were filling out these pieces of paper left and right. Here's my store name. Here's my address. Here's my phone number. Here's every, like, so basically it was a form that they could physically write down all the information that we needed for onboarding. And then we would follow back with them later and collect our payment information. <laughs> I love that. I love it. It worked so, it worked so well. It was. It blew my mind. I was like, "Excuse me," when they told me that. I'm, <laughs> of course, it's the last thing you think of. I'm really curious about the conversion rates of those. Like, how for, on the uh, you know digital signups? Like, is it more of a commitment? Maybe the conversion rates there would be higher versus like someone who's filling out a form. Maybe it's the opposite. I, I have no idea. Yeah. So we we do both now, uh, and this is what I've been spending my time on. Is I've been building a static site uh, for basically a lead page generator. Um, and we evaluated some of the lead page generators like MailChimp has lead pages you can design and there's other ones like leadpages.net that you can make. Um, but you don't really have complete control over design and, and, and uh, most of our clientele are interior designers. So they also own stores. So they're very, very design conscious. So we opted to just use a CMS like Statomic that would allow us to basically build blocks where Chad can just drag and drop a page together and slap a form on it. And I made a couple of custom components um, that when you submit a form, it takes a contact and it pushes it to a certain pipeline and pipe drive, which is our CRM. Uh, but anyway, yeah, so we kind of do we kind of do both. So when so actually, for example, there's a conference this weekend, uh, the Las Vegas Market, and uh, we have both. We have a landing page for it specifically for Las Vegas Market because we'll do specific deals for specific markets. And uh, there's also a stack of papers that Lindsay will hand out. So you could a on the on the paper it has a phone number you could call, it has email address you could email, it has a landing page you could go to, or uh, you know you could just write on it and give it to whoever gave it to you at the market and handle it that way. So we're just trying to do like all of the ways. <laughs> Basically, we don't care as long as you give us information and, and agree to sign up. We're like we're good, you know. 
Um, but and I don't know if it's a specific demographic that we have, but for, for whatever reason, pen and paper, that seems to be, that seems to trump any sort of other medium we have uh, at these markets for, for selling. I'm picturing like a paper form and at the bottom, there's like a submit and a cancel button <laughs> and print it out. And then there's also a checkbox that says like, I've read the terms and conditions. Right. And then there's like, there's like a piece of tape where you can put a Polaroid on for, for your store's like photo. <laughs> and then there's a captcha where you have to solve some math problem. Right. But yeah, I don't know. There's something about sometimes pencil and paper. I think one one weird thing is I've gotten used to drawing on this iPad. So now when I draw on paper, I get mad of the I get mad at the friction, like the actual physical friction between. Oh my god! It just I don't know. It's it's strange. Drawing on an iPad feels like ice skating versus uh, rollerblading. If that makes any sense. Oh man, I hate I hate drawing on the iPad. Yeah, it's. I want to like it. I've got the iPad Pro. I've got the pencil here. Uh, I cannot I cannot get myself to overcome the the feeling of resting my mm. my palm of my hand on the screen while I'm writing just skis me out yeah I I actually it's not I, right it's not natural I carry around a little strip of microfiber cloth in my back pocket because I have to clean my iPad constantly or otherwise I'll go crazy <laughs> <laughs> I can see that I have to clean it all the time I've been reading on it too uh I've been I've been using the the Kindle app because you can get it nearly you can just get it really dark and I find that it hasn't been hurting my eyes much or hasn't made me feel tired. So I've been reading a lot on it too. Uh, so I find that I've been leaving my phone places. <laughs> I forget where my phone is now, but I have my iPad with me all the time. Yeah, because even if someone calls you, you can just do Wi-Fi calling. Yep. But who like talks on the phone anymore? So uh, Slack, it's all, it's Slack calls all the way down. That's right. Slack calls and, and uh, FaceTime calls, I suppose. But yeah, I don't ever, I don't even really, I use my phone for tethering and that's about it. Um, and I don't even need to do that anymore. So, so in Aptos, it's like this strange black hole where I can have four bars of LTE, but get 0.25 megabytes per second down <laughs> over four bars of LTE. Uh, so I've been on a, I've been on a hunt for a coffee shop, which I just found one. Uh, the majority of coffee shops in this area, the Wi-Fi just doesn't work is like misconfigured or is just doesn't, doesn't work. Uh, and in, in the area I can't tether because I get no speed, but there's like this one area. It's like a three block radius in Aptos where my phone gets 25 megabytes per second down. And there's a coffee shop that has decent Wi-Fi. It's a perfect storm. It's a blessed triangle. I call it the Aptos, the technology triangle. (laughs) I don't know. Yeah. Well, anyway, I'm glad that I'm glad that launch went really smoothly for you. It seems really cool. Like, like you send me this stuff, and I have no idea what it even does. Uh, it just looks really cool to me, so I'm impressed. Uh, I'll, I'll put some links in the show notes of some videos or, or screenshots or something. It, it 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 it's pretty fun to just play with and look at. Yeah i I want to get to more charting and graphing and stuff for analytics for our stores, but just haven't haven't been able to get to it. So. It'll stay on my 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 to do list, I suppose. I mean, web web. Uh, so I did all the drawing on like canvas elements and also like tweaking of divs and stuff. But it's mostly just canvas and like the canvas element is just super powerful. And I do a lot of stuff with audio processing and all the whole web audio thing is super cool. It's just there's just all this cool tech that's just sitting there and and uh, it doesn't always do 100 percent what you want. But but man, it's it's it can be pretty powerful. Although I also had a, uh, like a, I have a little progress bar that acts as like a, like an audio meter, you know, so it goes up and down depending on the volume level. And, uh, yeah, for some reason that was animating and using like 150% CPU. Hmm. So 
thanks CSS animations. Had to turn that off until I figured it out. <laughs> Are you using any sort of uh, any sort of libraries to do your canvas stuff, your drawing stuff? Uh, no, the only library I use, and it's barely a library because it's just one function. Uh, it's called. Uh, I don't remember, but basically it's a mapping function that maps an integer value to like a color map. Hmm. So like weak signals are blue and then it maps it to, it kind of looks like a radar screen, right? Where the, the, the light rain is kind of light green and then yellow, then red, then like purple, then white. Yeah. So it's just a function that, that maps that so I can take this graph and, and plot it visually. Yeah, it looks like a like a heat map almost. Yeah, exactly, exactly. That's cool. I don't know anything about any of that stuff. Well, I'm really excited about it to get it out there and get it in front of people. And you know, we calling it an alpha, uh, but man, like it doesn't it doesn't feel like there's a lot of work left to do. <laughs> it's it's already pretty great, and I'm very happy with it. So uh, you know, I mean, there's still a lot of work to do on all the other pieces surrounding it, but the actual interface itself is 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 very far along. Yeah, that's awesome. I bet uh, I bet it feels good to to have that out the door and it's still it's still crazy to me to think like not all that long ago things were just on jquery and and now you're you know it's like a completely different animal now yeah that's awesome but and uh it's also kind of the weird disconnect because you know you understand how much work it takes i've spent all this time on it but for the users they don't understand <laughs> they have no concept of why it's better unless it's appreciably like noticeably better and it's kind of I don't know, disheartening is not the right word, but you spend all this work and you make the what essentially amounts to the same product. And uh, sometimes, I don't know, it just feels like the, the feedback you get doesn't equal the work you put into it. Why is this different? Yeah, exactly. I liked <laughs> I it the way it was. Problem. The other porridge was just right. It's probably a topic for another day. Right, wrong. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah? Get at us. I'm, at, I'm, I'm really struggling right now. Uh, I've been, I got a gym membership on top of my, my jujitsu stuff. And, uh, yeah, so I'm just, my body, all my energy is going to my body to recover, I think. Uh, but I guess what I'm trying to say is, uh, if you have any feedback for either of us, uh, actually, uh, I want to ask people if they have any favorite iPad workflows or, or tools that they used for working uh, I mainly just use Slack. Uh, I'm running the beta iPad OS, and Safari is pretty great. Uh, so I basically just use Slack. I use Notion in Safari, and I use Concepts for drawing. And other than that, it's just Netflix and uh, what's the other one that I'm not supposed to like? Uh, the Amazon one. Hulu. The Amazon book thing. Um, it's really Kindle really struggling on Kindle. I use Kindle. Uh, but yeah, if anyone has any, any things that they like to do or use on the iPad, things that have changed the game for them, uh, please get at me. I would love to hear about that. As always, you can reach us on Twitter. Uh, the show Twitter is DNC show. Sean is Sean wash bot. And I am Shrockwell. S-E-H Rockwell. That's how I remember it. <laughs> That's fine. Uh, yeah. Show notes are going to be available at dnc.show. So all the things that we mentioned uh, that and said that we had put in the show notes are going to be available at dnc.show. Look for the gray rectangle in the upper left-hand corner, or I suppose at the very top, because the latest episode shows in a big hero area up there. Uh, so if you're looking for something specific, uh, check out dnc.show. It'll be there. We'll also post show notes over on spectrum.chat. We've got a bunch of rooms uh, related to design development, including one for our podcast. So come chat and say hi. The podcast. The pad. Next on the pod. 
People are calling things the pod now. <gasps> really? The yeah. pod? The pod. We've reached critical critical mass for podcasts. Uh, yeah. Uh, well, as always, thanks to Spec for having us and putting us out there, running running with this in this journey, uh, in this pod journey that we're on. And if you're interested in other design and developer-related shows, head on over to spec.fm to see what's going on over there. We've got plenty of shows for you. If you're getting sick of us, you can listen to Developer T. If you get sick of Developer T, you can listen to Swift Unwrapped. And just keep the cycle going. Sounds like a good plan. This episode of Does Not Compute was edited by Mikhail Delport and produced by Sarah Jackson. You just curse at me in Morse code? Yeah, maybe. I don't know. I don't know what I said. I'll talk about my mother that way. Ooh, I wonder if learnmorsecode.com. Here we go. That's it. We can start. All right. Well, next time I talk to you, it'll be in dots and dashes. <laughs> There'll be a real limited audience there. We're going to do the world's first Morse code podcast. Can you imagine that for an oh, hour? Oh, man, that beep, must beep, be beep, a beep, thing. Beep, That's got to be a thing, right? I mean, you can just literally turn on a radio and you can do that, but... Dit Dit, the podcast for Morse code and CW operators. There you go. I'll, I'll talk to you later. All right, see you, man. <laughs>